Nature's Archive Podcast, a Jumpstart Nature production. Slime molds are beautiful, weird, and amazing organisms. Often mistaken for fungi, they're actually single-celled, yet they grow and efficiently move in search for food, can start and stop their life cycle based on environmental conditions, and even change colors several times during their brief life cycle. They can be beautifully colored, frequently iridescent, and can be ornately shaped. And better still, they can be found in much of the world, maybe even your yard. My guest today, Allison Pollock, is a renowned slime mold photographer and unabashed enthusiast of slime molds and their habitats. If you follow nature photographers on Instagram, perhaps you count yourself as one of her nearly 50,000 followers. Today, Allison tells us exactly what a slime mold is. And no, it's not a mold or a fungi. She describes a typical life cycle, where they grow, and how to find them. Allison then tells us about her astonishing macro photography of slime molds, both in the field and in her home studio. She walks through her process, technique, and equipment that she uses to create her acclaimed photos. If you do nothing else, follow her on Instagram at marin underscore mushrooms, or check out the show notes at podcast.naturesarchive.com to get a hint of the beauty of the slime molds and Allison's artistic skill in capturing them. You can also find Allison on Facebook at Allison K. Pollock and on iNaturalist at Allison underscore Pollock. So without further delay, Allison Pollock and the wonder of slime molds. Allison, I'm super excited to have you on the show today. Thank you for being here. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for asking me. I don't know how I could avoid asking. I've been a fan of your photography for quite a while. I'm not sure when I stumbled across you on Instagram originally, but I knew that someday I would have to have you on Nature's Archive. So the day has finally come. <laughs> I'm happy to be here. Always happy to talk about slime molds and tiny fungi. Yeah. And the tiny things in nature, I think, are just always so enlightening, at least to me, because it's an, it's a world that goes unnoticed for so long. And one day then you just have this mini epiphany, I guess, when you see what's really happening at the small scale. Slime molds, yes, slime molds and tiny fungi. That's why we're here today. Why don't we start actually with a little bit about you, though, and how did you get interested in nature? I'm assuming that you didn't just jump into slime molds with no nature background. I didn't, but I didn't get into nature as a youngster. I grew up in a suburban town right outside New York City, very suburban, no woods, no nothing like that. My parents were New Yorkers, and they took us to museums and things like that, never nature. So I was literally never in a forest all the way through growing up. In college, you know, there were some woods on campus, but it didn't really draw me. And it was only when I went to grad school, and I lived near the University Arboretum and had a boyfriend who was interested in nature, and his parents had a cabin in the north woods of Minnesota. That was the first time I went into a forest, and I just thought it was stunningly beautiful. I was a runner at the time, too, so I, would, I lived very close, as I said, to the Arboretum. I would run a lot through the Arboretum, and I think that's when I really started noticing things. Although, as a kid, I always loved trees. That was my favorite thing. As you were experiencing the forest in the upper Midwest, did you find yourself being drawn towards fungi or any of these small creatures, or how did that next step emerge? I don't remember even noticing fungi when I was there, but I was a runner, so it's hard to notice things like that when you're running. I moved to California in 83, I think, and... I also started hiking because there's so many beautiful places to hike here. I remember my first hike in a redwood forest and I was just 
blown away by how beautiful it was and how beautiful the trees were. So I started hiking a lot. Eventually, I got an injury in my back and it was pretty much, it was too hard to run anymore. So I was hiking a lot. And certainly when I was hiking, I was noticing some of the mushrooms that were out there in the woods. But I didn't think very much of it. I always carried a camera with me because I was always, I've always loved taking pictures, just a simple point and shoot. And my friend that I did a lot of hiking with one day bought a mushroom book, All the Rain Promises and More, which is a fun little mushroom book. And I thought she was a little weird, a little nerdy to want to study these mushrooms. But I thought, okay, I'll go along with her. So I started looking at the mushrooms with her. I started taking a few pictures of them. And I did that for several years. That was It was much more about the hiking than taking pictures of the mushroom. But one day I was hiking with a friend and I saw uh, these little orange beans hanging from a branch, which turned out to be a slime mold called Leocarpus fragilis. But all I saw were these yellow bean-like tiny little things on a, a bit of redwood. And I had no idea what it was. I had an iPhone with me. I'd graduated to an iPhone. So I took a picture with my iPhone and I went home and I did a reverse Google image search. And I quickly figured out that they were something called a slime mold. And I'd never heard of what a slime mold was. And I started reading and I kept reading and I kept reading and I kept reading. And 12 hours later at four in the morning, I said, you have to go to sleep. And that was it. I was completely smitten from that moment. Wow, you just fell into the rabbit hole in in one day's time. Completely fell into the rabbit hole, yeah. I just thought they were amazing. They were beautiful. I'd never heard of them. They're so tiny. Everything fascinated me. So the one that you saw, Leocarpus fragilis, tell me a little bit more about what it looked like. What You said it was hanging from a branch. It looks like hanging beans, like little beans on a thread. And Leocarpus fragilis, as is the case with virtually all slime molds, goes through color changes as it matures. When you first see a slime mold in the forest and how it gets the name slime mold, it's a plasmodium, which is a sort of vein-like network, like lace almost, that fans out across the log or leaves or whatever the substrate is looking for food. And at some point... It's not really known exactly why, but it stops fanning out and these fruiting bodies come arise up out of the plasmodium. So in the case of this particular one, the fruiting bodies, when they first arise, are this very bright yellow-orange, which is one of my favorite colors. So I noticed them not just because the colors were really bright and vivid, but because what is this thing that I've never seen before? It changes color to brown, maroon, but the yellow stage is when I think they're prettiest. They're like dangling threads. And and how far are they dangling? Millimeters? Oh, no. This is a relatively big one for a slime mold. So the fruiting bodies are maybe two to three millimeters each, and the threads are a couple of millimeters. In my photography work, that's big. And the reason I ask this is I'm wondering how you happened to notice this. You were just in that mode of looking closely or was that bright color just so vibrant that you couldn't miss it? I don't think I was looking closely. I think it was just a bright color. So a lot of slime molds, because they're so small, are really hard to see. And we can talk in a bit about how to find them, but they're really tiny. So one, two, three millimeters is big for a slime mold. But some of them have big clusters. And so this, in fact, was a big cluster. So what I was looking at was maybe two to three centimeters of a bunch of these fruiting bodies. So it was much more noticeable. And it was right at eye level. 
Okay. So that helps give me a good visual of what it was you saw. And then you spent hours and hours that night researching slime molds. Were you able to find good resources online? And approximately how long ago was this? I think this was about four years ago. I found some resources online, academic articles and things like that. There weren't a lot of very good pictures. Slime molds are now an extremely popular subject among macro photographers, but there were very few good pictures. But I was able to find some information and read a little bit. Enough to certainly get me engaged and want to go out to look for more. Yeah, it seems like we're still on the front end of a phenomenon in terms of interest in slime molds. There have been a lot of stories. There's a radio show, in fact, called Science Friday. Oh, I love Science Friday. They profiled slime molds just a few months ago. Maybe it was a year ago now. Really? Yes. I haven't heard that one. Yeah, so I'm really fascinated by how this, like, so many people have gotten interested in this subject. And I think a lot of it is because of the type of work you do in raising the awareness of slime molds through the amazing photography. Before we get there, I want to ask you a little bit more about the life cycle of the slime mold. You started to describe it a little bit, but can you walk through a sample case of a common slime mold and how it begins and the full cycle? Sure. Let's walk through a general case rather than a sample case, the most common case. So it's a cycle, of course, but at the beginning of the cycle, there's spores. And so the spores are out there dispersed by the wind or animals or something, and they're sitting in various places. And two compatible spores will meet and merge and form. So it's the, so two single celled organisms, spores will meet and merge and form a single cell with multiple nuclei, two nuclei. And then it keeps expanding and it's still a single cell with multiple nuclei. And eventually it turns into plasmodium if the conditions are right. If the conditions are not right, it may try to form a plasmodium but stop. And that's something called a sclerotium, which is a dried out, kind of like a dried out plasmodium. And another interesting little tidbit about slime molds is it may be dried out because the conditions are not good, typically not enough moisture. And maybe it can be that way for a month or a year, even longer. And then when moisture comes back, it'll start continuing on the life cycle. Once, as I said earlier, when we see the slime mold in the forest, the first time they're visible to our eyes is when you see the plasmodium itself. So as I said, it's kind of like a lace that fans out, spreads out along mostly logs, leaf litter, decomposing plant matter, and it's looking for food. So it feeds typically on algae and yeast, bacteria, and sometimes on fungi as well. And at some point, and as far as I know, scientists don't know exactly what the signal is, but at some point it stops the spreading out of plasmodium and it pushes its energy, loose term, into the fruiting bodies which arise out of the plasmodium and the plasmodium itself completely disappears. You can sometimes see little tracks on a log, but the plasmodium disappears and the fruiting bodies start to form. And as they're forming, many of them are white at the very beginning, a very bright white. Some of them have stalks. They don't all have stalks. But as they're forming and maturing, they're changing colors. And some of them can change colors as many as five times in a very short period, which is just mind-blowing to me. So they're growing up, they're changing the colors, the fruiting bodies are maturing, and eventually they will 
dry out. So the outer, sort of the spore-holding cyst um, sphere, if you will, of the slime mold, that's not always spherical, but that shape of the slime mold is called a sporocyst. And the outer layer of that is called a peridium. And the peridium has these pretty patterns and calcium carbonate or lime patterns on top sometimes. So when the peridium dries out or dries up or disappears, that exposes the spores within. And then the spores are dispersed by the wind, by animals that eat them and then move through the forest or animals that just brush up against them. And then the cycle starts anew. And that cycle from plasmodium till the spores are released can be a day, it can be a few days, it can be a couple of weeks, maybe a little longer. But it's typically a few days. And I have some favorite slime molds that I like to see the different stages of. So if I find one of these in the forest one day, I might go back two days later to see how it's developed. And most of these are tiny, but there are a fair number of them that are big enough that even if you're walking through the forest, you'll see them. But most of them, the ones I favorite ones to photograph tend to be one, two, maybe three millimeters tall. You were talking about the reproductive cycle being largely driven by spores and propagation of spores. And for that reason, for a long time, slime molds were thought to be fungi. And as you said, it's it's since been determined that they aren't. Are, are they generally all these weird kind of single-celled organisms, or do you have other more complicated yeah. cellular structures? So there's cellular and acellular slime molds. So the myxomycetes are one class, and then these other slime molds, which are called cellular slime molds, which are dictyostyloids or something like that, which are microscopic. So we're mostly talking about the myxomycetes. Back to your originally classifying them as fungi. So yeah, because they reproduce with spores, they were way back when we just had plant and animal, only two kingdoms. They were classified as, actually, I don't know at that point, maybe animals because they were moving, they had motion. But then they had a fungi kingdom. So they were put in the fungi kingdom because they reproduce with spores. They don't have mycelial threads and they don't have hyphae. They behave more like amoeba. So they were moved into protista kingdom with amoeba, which is where they are now. And that movement I know is an area of fascinating study as well for scientists and amateurs alike. As I understand it, there's still a lot of unknowns as to how they decide to move and and how they move. And I say decide as if they're making a conscious decision, but they don't have any neural mechanism as I understand it. Is that about right? Or do you have more to add on the subject of slime mold movement? Well, I'm not a scientist. I'm a photographer. I'm actually a mathematician by training, but I'm not a scientist. And so I don't read the really heavy scientific literature on slime molds. I read some. There's a lot in the popular press about slime molds thinking and having brains and solving mazes. And we don't know exactly how that happens, but there's the classic example. I think it was Japanese scientists who found this, but I could be wrong on that. If you put slime molds at the beginning of a maze and some oat flakes, which is one of their favorite foods if you're trying to grow slime molds, in the maze somewhere, the slime mold will eventually work its way through the maze and eventually it'll find the food. If you then take it out of the maze and then just take a piece of the slime mold and put it at the very beginning, it will go directly to the oat flakes. And there are other examples. And so people tend to, some people like to talk about slime molds having brains. I suspect it's more chemicals systems, chemical tracks or something like that. I don't really myself like to get into the whole issue of slime molds having brains and thinking. Yeah, it's just not where I go with it. I guess the fascinating part of it is they, they're they able to 
somehow this is where you don't want to anthropomorphize, but yeah, they learn from past experience and learn is not even the right word, but they're able to yeah. remember again, not the correct word. <laughs> this is painting yeah. yourself into a corner, but that's what makes it fascinating because they don't, they don't have a brain the way we think of it. So it's fun to look at. And it makes me want to ask you, have you grown any or experimented with any yourself or maybe done time-lapse to see how they behave over time? Let me say one thing before we get into that. So the whole thing about slime molds, I think one of the big things that popularized slime molds in recent years is that the PBS science show Nova did a one-hour special on slime molds, and they really focused on the, I don't want to say thinking, that sort of aspect of a parent's learning or what looks like learning. And so that was probably what popularized it more than anything else. And also, increase people's awareness of slime molds. They didn't at all focus on how pretty they are. They did talk a little bit about their life cycle. But if you want to know more about this whole part of slime molds and solving mazes and things like that, it's definitely worth watching the Nova episode. Hey, nature enthusiast. Do you want to be part of something bigger? Well, we're building a movement at Jumpstart Nature, and we've just added some new volunteers to help with our podcast and website but this means our costs are going up too. I need to purchase software licenses to give them access to the production tools we use. For example, one media editing license costs $21 a month. And this is where you come in. Please consider supporting our mission by contributing to Jumpstart Nature through our Patreon or direct contributions, or even purchasing some logo merch. Check out all these options at jumpstartnature.com donate, also linked in the show notes. Not ready to make a financial contribution? then please share this episode with three friends. Sharing what we do is actually one of the very best ways you can help us. Thank you all for your continued support. So you're four-ish years into this journey of slime molds. It's obvious that you've just immersed yourself in the topic and in the photography. So what is it that keeps you coming back to them? What do you enjoy so much about them? I guess, first of all, their beauty. It's just amazing to me that this organism that's so tiny that is all over the forest as you're walking through a wet forest, and you, most people don't notice them or even know that they exist, and yet there are these beautiful organisms on the forest floor or on, on dead logs or whatever. They're just gorgeous, and people don't know about them. They have a fascinating life cycle that they change colors is amazing to me. Their different structures are amazing to me. I don't know. It's just everything about slime molds is amazing to me. When I started photographing them, I was just using a basic camera, bought a macro lens so that I could photograph them. They're pretty small and I wanted to be able to see more of their details. So I started getting deeper and deeper into higher magnification lenses. And we can talk about that later, but I'm still fascinated by them. The more that you magnify them, the more detail you see in the fruiting bodies. For example, a lot of them are iridescent, just magnificent blue, purple, iridescent colors, golds and silvers. So there are certain genera that you can really see the iridescence, but there are others that you see the iridescence only when you use really high magnification. I don't know that I'll get tired of them, but it's hard to imagine. The few that I've seen have just really been captivating, and I, I don't even have the eye for it. So I'm really looking forward to learning a little bit more from you about that. It's obvious you've also spent a lot of time learning about where they grow, why they grow, where they grow, a number of other topics. So how much of this has really been your own discovery or self-discovery versus finding a community learning from others? 
I would say it's much more finding the community learning. When I first started trying to learn about slime molds, the only person who was posting them on Instagram was a woman named Sarah Lloyd from Tasmania. And she'd been studying and is still studying slime molds on her property in northern Tasmania. And she was very helpful to me at the beginning, provided a lot of information. And I'm still in communication with her and she's still helpful. I should say before that, that When I started taking photos of the slime molds, I was just doing it for my own enjoyment. I didn't post them anywhere. I wasn't on social media. I thought that social media was going to be a big time suck, and I didn't have time, and I just heard bad things about social media, so I didn't go there. But my friend Katrina encouraged me. We joke about it. She kicked my butt for a year and a half, and I finally relented and said, okay, I'll, I'll start posting some photos. And what happened was really a delightful surprise. What was unexpected to me on Instagram was meeting people. First, I would chat with them online, and then many people I've actually met in person. Then ultimately, I joined Facebook as well. And there is on Facebook a fantastic group to learn more about slime molds called, no surprise, Slime Mold Identification and Appreciation. And That's also been a great source of information and seeing other people's photos. And there are world experts on there who do a lot of identification and help people to understand how to identify one species from the next. I want to give a particular shout out to a guy named Edvin or Eddie Johannesson, who's from Norway. And Eddie and I have become friends over the last couple of years. And he is on there almost every day, identifying slime molds for people, explaining why it's one species versus another. And he just gives freely of his wonderful expertise to so many people. So I haven't met him yet. I do hope to meet him someday. And there are others around the world that I chat with on a very regular basis, and I'd love to meet someday. And we all learn from each other a lot. And that's just been an unexpected joy. And then meeting some of these people locally to meet some of the people that I'd originally chatted with on Instagram and then meet them in person was has really been a lot of fun. That's one of the great things about so many of these nature communities is you find out that there are other, and I don't mean any offense by this, but other crazy people like yourself or like like myself, as the case might be. Nerds. Uh, Let's call them nerds, okay? <laughs> nerds. <laughs> yeah. Nature nerds. Nature nerd is a good one. I've stumbled across that Facebook group and have been following it for a while and trying to soak in the knowledge. And unfortunately, it's been so dry here for the last, I don't know how long, that I haven't had a ton of luck finding slime molds myself. But I'm really excited because it looks like our weather, you and I are in the same region of California. The weather has really changed for the better for slime molds here in the last few days. So I'm getting excited and I assume you are too. Oh my gosh, I'm getting incredibly excited because I haven't seen a slime mold in the Bay Area since, except for one. There's one that, that, that you can find all summer long. It's not very interesting. It's called Fuligoseptica. It's bright yellow when it's young. And I don't quite understand that when it grows without any apparent moisture. But except for that, no, I haven't seen slime molds in the Bay Area since probably April. So I am really happy that we have rain in the forecast next week. And I expect to be going out the weekend a few days after that and finding slime molds. I think that we're probably going to jump around a little bit here. There's never a linear pathway in these sorts of discussions. Mm -hmm. So talking about rain and moisture, those are important environmental conditions for slime molds. So can you tell me a little bit more about how you find them, where you find them, when you find them? What's your approach? So like mushrooms, they need moisture and they typically start their life cycle in shady places. So wherever you see mushrooms, in most cases, you're likely to see slime molds as well. Mushrooms are just much more visible. 
So they like, like mushrooms, they like dark, shady parts. And they're all around the world. Let me say that. They're in every continent, even Antarctica. The easiest place to find slime molds is in temperate forests. We have lots of those in the United States. There are lots of those in many other continents. You can find them in many other environments. But what I'm most familiar with is the temperate forests. And so in those forests, they are growing on decomposing logs, leaf litter, wet. Everything has to be wet. So well-decomposed logs, leaf litter, sometimes live plants. The, the, my first one that I found, I mentioned Leocarpus fragilis. That one you can commonly find in huge clusters covering live plants in the woods. But the easiest way to find them is to look for well-decomposed wood. And when I say well-decomposed, it's maybe a little soft to the touch when it's wet. It has to be quite wet. And slime molds like dark, shady places. So it's best to look underneath. We talk about flipping logs, picking up a log, looking at the underside. Please put it back when you're done. So all the little critters that are living underneath can have that. On the sides of logs. And then wet leaf litter. Decomposing leaves on the ground. If you very carefully pick up like the top layer of leaves, you'll often find slime molds under there. So you're not going to find them when you're walking through the forest. I mean, you'll see a few. There are some that are big enough. But if you really want to find the smaller ones, you have to stop. I have knee pads, which are nice and helpful. I'm kneeling on the ground. I'm picking up bits of wood. My eyes aren't the best. I know some youngsters out there that I've gone to the woods with that can see things with amazing clarity that are tiny, tiny. I can't do that. I carry a magnifying glass with me and a light, actually an LED lit magnifying glass, which you can find online for 10 bucks or something, which is terrifically useful for looking for little tiny things. I think a lot of people have problem finding them the first time because they don't realize how small they are. But once you find your first one and you get how small they are, you're likely to find a lot more. It sets that search image in your mind. So now you know what to look for once that first one has been found. Yeah. So if you find in the forest and say it's rained in the last couple of days and and you find some wet leaf litter, so you basically, you get down on your knees and you start sifting through the leaves very carefully looking at that leaf litter and what's your hit rate in a state like that? Like how often do you actually find one? Let me back up. I think it's actually easier to find them on decomposing wood. That's my experience. Okay. It may be different in other areas, but where I live, it's easiest. So I typically tend to look for bits of decomposing wood. And again, over time, you get a sense of what decomposing wood looks like, what's likely to have something. What's my hit rate? I'm getting a lot better just because I'm better at identifying the kinds of wood it grows on. And in leaf litter, you'll see maybe one or two. If you're on the ground and you're looking, you'll see one or two. If I see a couple of fruiting bodies, then right around there, I very carefully pick up the leaves like one little leaf at a time and peel it back. And then you're likely to find more. To say what the hit rate is really depends on how much rain there's been, how much moisture there is in the forest. So it's hard to distinguish between those two. Does a given species have a preference for the type of organic material that it grows with? So I can think of that in a few cases. For example, the same Leocarpus fragilis that I referred to before, I tend to see that more on live plants than a dead wood. It grows on dead wood also, but much more on live plants in large clusters. That's the one example that comes to my mind the most. There's one other area I forgot to mention where slime molds can be easily found, and that's in snowmelt. 
So if you go up into the mountains in spring where there has been a snowpack and the snowpack is melting, if you look at the very edge of the snowpack, literally the place where the snow stops and the ground starts, that's a really good place to look for what are called naviculous slime molds, which are slime molds that grow only in snowmelt areas. So there are about roughly a thousand species of documented slime molds and about a hundred of them, 90 or a hundred of them grow only in snowmelt areas. And they're actually not that hard to find. So where I live in California, once our rain stops in March or April or February on a bad year, I will head towards the mountains, towards the snowmelt and look for things in snowmelt. So for example, if you go to snowmelt and you see a stick that's partway underneath the snowbank and partway not, if you very carefully pull out that stick, there's a good chance you're going to find some slime molds on there. And you could look 10, 20, maybe 30 yards from the edge of the snowmelt and still find things. Because the snowmelt season is long, meaning you can go higher and higher in elevation and keep getting to snowmelt, even when we have no more rain after March or so, I can go to the mountains for a month or two months and go up to higher and higher elevations and keep finding slime molds. So snowmelt is a really good territory. That's so fascinating. And I had no idea that the snowmelt border would be such fertile ground for slime molds. Do you think, like you mentioned the example in mountains, so people that maybe live in other snowy parts of the world that are not mountainous, can you also find slime molds at the snowmelt border? My understanding is that the snow bank needs to be there for about two or three months. So you have to have a long enough winter and enough snow. So you're building up a snow bank for a couple of months which typically means somewhere up in the mountains. But for example, I think where I lived in Wisconsin, where it snowed a lot and then the snow would melt, that's not, I don't think that's where you're going to find slime molds in the spring. Okay. Because it melts too much, so you don't have that constant snow pack for long enough? Yeah. Very interesting. So talking about snow pack, one of the questions I did have too was temperature. And I've heard people say before, you have to have warm temperatures for slime mold, but that totally dispels the need for warm temperatures. Is there... Any other guidelines you have in terms of weather and temperature and conditions that might be favorable or disfavorable to slime molds? Keep in mind, again, that I'm not a scientist here. So it's more from observation and from what, mm-hmm. some of the reading that I've done. I don't think temperature is anywhere near as important as moisture. So here in the Bay Area, I'll find slime molds in the winter when it's wet and cold for us, which might be 40s, which is really cold for us. And I might also find them if it's still raining in March or April when we have temperatures in the 70s, I might still be able to find them. The naviculous ones, the snowmelt ones, are only going to be in the colder temperatures where there's been snow. But we also have tropical slime molds. So there are some species that are primarily in the tropics, gorgeous species in the tropics, and it can be extremely hot. I went to Colombia one time and I went looking for slime molds in the jungle there and there were some beautiful slime molds and it was horribly hot and very moist. But I think much more important is moisture rather than temperature. All right. And that then also ties back to, you said Sarah Lloyd has been very helpful to you over the years. Do the species that are seen, say in Tasmania or Colombia, are they the same species you find here or is it totally distinct for the habitat? There are a lot of slime molds that are cosmopolitan, meaning you can find them all over the world. And there are some slime molds that, for whatever reason, only grow in certain parts of the world. So I mentioned, for example, that there are a number of slime molds that are just only in tropical regions. There are some slime molds that they have in Australia that we don't have here and vice versa. 
And that might be true. Certainly some others that are, say, in Europe or Northern Europe that are, might be common there, but we don't have here. And what about finding slime mold, say, more in a suburban or urban habitat? I've heard some anecdotal cases of people finding them in their gardens at times. What about you? Like, Do you find them in those sorts of locations? I do. You can definitely find them in gardens. So I have some friends who've two or three times given me some slime molds, two sets of friends from their gardens, but that's because they're watered. And I don't have much of a garden to speak of. I spend all my time indoors with my photography and in the woods. So I don't have much of a garden. You can certainly find them in gardens and you can certainly find them in indoor environments. One of my favorite tips that I learned was from Damon Tai, who was on your show quite a while ago. And Damon introduced me to the idea that slime molds will grow quite well under ivy. I think it's English ivy, which has thick leaves. And so they seem to retain the moisture well underneath. And so in the winter, I can, I've many times just taken walks in various neighborhoods and I see some ivy or just even a dark area in somebody's garden. I stick my hand in and pick up a leaf and there's some slime mold. So you can definitely find them in urban areas, not just in parks where there's trees, but in people's gardens. I was really quite surprised how often, I'm still surprised how often if I walk through a neighborhood and just poke under dark areas of people's yards, I will find something. I'm just visualizing you poking under dark areas of people's yards. <laughs> I don't go into their yards. So a common example is people next to the street. So I'm just picking up something that's right at the edge at the curb. Yeah. I am very respectful of people's property. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. And I'm wondering too, because you're talking about decomposing wood and so many people use mulch as well. Do you find slime molds on mulch? You do. You definitely do. You find mushrooms on mulch and you find slime molds on mulch. This year, because of big concerns about fire safety and fire spreading, a lot of trees were cut down in my neighborhood. Just a huge number. Very sad, but I understand the reason. And so they dumped a huge pile of mulch right across the street from my house. And I'm quite curious to see what happens this winter. It may be too young. It needs to be probably more dry than it will be or more aged, I should say, than it will be. But I'm curious to see what's going to be growing in that mulch. I actually took some of it and put it in my little log garden in my yard. <laughs> I have a log garden. For the sole purpose of growing slime molds? <laughs> yes, that gives you a nice little captive environment. When you find things growing in your log garden, do you post them online or do you have a an album of backyard finds or anything like that? I do grow them in my backyard, but the time that they're growing in my backyard, when it's raining, they're also growing in the woods and I'm likely to find different things other than the same logs in my yard. So I will look there. I don't water them. That would be a great way to extend the season, but we're in a drought, so I don't feel good about watering the logs. If I did, I would certainly see a lot more. I have found things in my yard. Another friend came over one time and one of, one of these people with magnifying lenses for eyes, two months after the rain stopped in the dry season, she was poking around dry leaf litter in my yard and found almost a dozen species in one afternoon, including one extremely I don't want to say rare, but rarely reported one. So I posted that on INET, but I you can obscure the location on INET. So for the, some of the ones, most of the ones in my yard, I obscure. I don't want people coming around and poking in my yard. So you're inspiring me to look in my yard for slime molds. I haven't really tried that for some reason. I don't know why. I guess I've had a blindness towards slime molds in the yard. So I'm going to do that, especially with the rainy weather. But I do, I want to make sure before we run out of time that we give adequate time to your photography, because that's the thing that 
really attracted me to this topic in the first place and to you in particular. Wow, where to begin with this? You do so much. You started with an iPhone. So why don't we start there? You took some pictures with an iPhone and what was your next step into the world of slime mold photography? Yeah, I took a picture with the iPhone. That was the afternoon when I spent 12 hours sitting at the computer. And as I said, I was immediately smitten. I was interested in macro photography. And I think I probably had the macro lens before then, but it was sitting in a corner. And I, at that time, I was doing landscape photography and was really, I thought, really passionate about landscape photography. No, not compared to how passionate I am about slime molds these days. So I immediately switched to macro photography and slime molds in particular. So I started with a Canon 60 camera and an excellent Canon 100 millimeter macro lens and started looking around in the forest for slime molds. And over time, I got a better camera. Then I wanted to be able to photograph them more closely. So if you take a standard macro lens setup and add something called extension tubes, you can increase the magnification that way. And there's another little piece of gear that I want to encourage people to get if you're at all interested in looking even more closely than a macro lens will let you go. And that is something called a Raynox, R-A-Y-N-O-X. Maybe we can put a link in the show notes. And it's Mm -hmm. about $90 for basically a diopter that you attach to the end of your lens, and it will increase the magnification ratio by almost a factor of two and a half. And for $90, the quality is amazing. So you can get much closer with this. There are other ways to do macro photography that don't cost a lot of money, and there are plenty of websites that talk about how to do that. You can also photograph slime molds with one of these macro clip-on lenses with your phone. No, that's not going to get you a highly artistic sharp photo, but you will be able to photograph slime molds with them. And I also just want to add that if you don't want to go whole hog and get a mirrorless camera or an expensive DSLR, that Olympus makes a series of cameras called Olympus Tough. The latest one is a TG6. This is what Damon uses for most of his photos. And it is amazing what you can do. Ah, you have one. (coughs) Yes. Damon in particular is just, it's astonishing to me what he does with that camera. But it is a very good camera. It does focus stacking, which we should probably talk about. So you can really photograph very well photographs of tiny things. If you're going to get that camera, be sure to get the little ring light that comes with the camera. You need that to photograph things that closely. You know, beyond an iPhone and a macro lens, I would say that's the next step is that the little Olympus TG camera, which can do phenomenal photographs. So then I, anyway, so I was photographing in the field and then I was doing, well, let's talk about focus stacking because that explains why I bought my next camera. So the when you're photographing very small things, the more you magnify them, the less the depth of field is. And depth of field is a term for how much of what you're looking at is in sharp focus as you're taking a picture. So the higher the magnification goes, the less the depth of field is. So if you were to take a picture of a very small slime mold, you would only see one thin slice in focus and everything would be out of focus. So focus stacking is a technique where you move the camera in tiny little increments. So you're changing the focal length and you take a series of photos where you change the focal length a tiny bit at a time. And then there's computer software, it can be done in Photoshop, but it's not that good, but there's specialized computer software that then takes that stack, as it's called, of photographs, each with a slightly different focal length, and combines the most in-focus portions of each photo into a composite image, which still, as even though I've done this hundreds, probably thousands of times, 
still seems like magic to me. So I was doing focus stacking in the field by manually rotating the focus knob on my camera a tiny bit at a time, which was a very painstaking and time-consuming process. And I heard at some point about these new mirrorless cameras that were coming out that had focus, not focus stacking, but focus bracketing, meaning it takes the series of photos, you set up the start and the increment, and it does it automatically. And I thought, wow, that would be a huge time saver and allow me to photograph a lot more slime molds. So I bought one of those cameras. I bought an Olympus EM1 Mark III. There are a number of Olympus cameras that do that. And in fact, now almost all of the I used to say all of the camera manufacturers except Sony have mirrorless cameras with focus bracketing built in, but Sony just released two days ago a very expensive mirrorless camera with focus bracketing. I think it has limitations. I would recommend Olympus or one of the others for now. So that's what I'm using in the field. When I hear focus stacking, I've played around a little bit with that myself. And one of the challenges I have is moving the camera while you're taking your bracketed photos. So if you move the camera, then that can make it very difficult to use the software to actually create your stack. So I'm curious, what do you do? Do you use a tripod or some other method to keep the camera still? Yeah, I absolutely use a tripod. There are people who can do this without a tripod. Damon doesn't use a tripod. He has very steady hands. If you're using, say, the Olympus, you just want to brace it against something. Put your arms against your body where you're holding the camera. Lean against a log. Do something to brace yourself so that you're not moving the camera. You can move the camera a little bit, and the focus stacking software will still be able to adjust for that within limits. But for the kind of work I do, a tripod is an absolute must. And then going along with that, lighting. So you mentioned at the beginning that some of the slime molds are iridescent, and then also you're inherently in a dark, wet place, so there's not a lot of natural light. How do you handle lighting to really showcase the iridescence of your subject? Otherwise, your shutter speed is going to be so slow in a dark forest. Yeah, so I really prefer natural light. I don't like to use artificial light and the vast majority of my field photos do not have any artificial lighting on them. So I do one of two things. Either I photograph it in place and I have a slow shutter speed. I'll, I will go up to half a second or even a second. I'm on a tripod as long as I'm not shifting the ground with my weight there. If I'm going to do slow shutter speeds, I will walk away and start it remotely. Even sitting next to the camera Sometimes almost you're breathing, you'll move your leg a tiny bit. So I tend to walk away if they're slow. So either I do slow shutter speeds or I am certainly not against taking the specimen itself and moving it into a location where there's more light. You don't ever want any direct sunlight on the subject that creates a lot of problems, but I just move it to a place where there's more light. I carry little things like potato chips, the little clips that you use to close the potato chip bag. Mm -hmm. I carry a couple of those in my camera bag that I use to hold twigs or leaves or whatever. So I can put things in a place that has a little bit more light. So those are the two things I do. I will sometimes, especially if it's the end of the day and there's just isn't any more light, I do carry a couple of LED light panels with me. I don't use flash. I know a number of photographers who photograph slime molds and do an exquisite job and they use flash. It's just not my cup of tea. I haven't, I've never really learned flash very well. That may be the reason. I've just managed to do just fine with the lighting setup that I have. Flash would make it easier. Yeah. In the dark spaces, 
for sure, Flash would make it easier. There are other issues you have to deal with with Flash. You have to really be good about diffusing the Flash. Otherwise, you get what are called specular highlights and other issues like that. Yeah, I was going to say, I think Flash would actually be, in a lot of ways, more challenging because of the issues you just brought up. I have a number of photographer friends who use Flash exclusively. They, they don't use other lights and their photos are beautiful. So you can certainly do well with Flash. It's just not the path that I've chosen for myself. I don't want to diminish use of Flash. It's perfectly fine. You just have to be careful with diffusion. Makes sense. One of the great things about your field photography is the composition. How do you set up the composition to create just such wonderful works of art? Well, first of all, thank you very much. I composition is really important to me. So the first thing I should say is that I'm looking for something, the subject, whether it's a slime mold or fungus that has some appeal to me. I'm very heart centered. So I wanted to have some sort of emotional appeal to me. So that would be my favorite kind of a subject rather than just a technical or documentary style. And beyond that, composition is really important to me. And in particular, my style of photography, this is just my personal style, is I like to have a very soft, out-of-focus background, which is called bokeh. That's the technical term. A very soft background. And you learn over time how much of a distance to put between your subject and something in the background in order to have that soft background. And also, lower f-stops or wider apertures on your camera will also make for a softer background. What I'm Looking for slime molds or tiny fungi. I love to photograph tiny fungi as well. They're a little bit bigger, so a little bit easier to photograph, but I also love them as subjects. If I'm going to position them where they are and I'm not going to move them, then I look very carefully at what's behind them and I will always clean the background, get bits of stray light, anything that is anything. If I look through the viewfinder and my eye is distracted, to looking at something beyond what my subject is, then I try to remove it from the background. I also, not with the case of slime molds, but it's too hard, but for mushrooms, tiny mushrooms, I also clean them. So if there's specks of dirt on them or something else on them, I carry tiny tweezers with me and I carry tiny paintbrushes. And so I do what my friend Tim calls custodial maintenance on the fungi. So I brush off bits of dirt or leaves or whatever, or or take things off with the tweezers. So I try to clean it up as much as possible. If there are some really tiny spots where I'm afraid if I remove them, I'm going to damage the mushroom, then I'll clean those up in Photoshop at home. So the background is really important to me. So cleaning up the background. And sometimes when I set things up, I don't really notice it, but then if I, once I do the stack and I look through the camera and I run through the stack and all of a sudden I say, oops, there's something in the background, then I'll clean it up and just reshoot the stack. I see. And that does take conscious effort. I know there have been many times where I've been doing just basic macro photography and I'm so focused on the subject, I totally miss some other distracting element. So I think going into it with that in mind is probably helpful and that's something I should try to do more. Yeah. And certainly when I started out doing this, I did that a lot. I was constantly saying, oh, why did I, how did I miss that? But I'm much better at it now. Practice. Yeah. And I would really be interested. I don't know if you're willing to share this or not, but some of the specifics on your equipment, like makes and models, because I'm thinking tripods, the tripod I have, I can extend it up and down and there's some flexibility. But if I, if there's a log laying on the forest floor, my tripod is not going to get 
down low like that. So I'm curious to hear about some of the details. Sure. I'm willing to do that. I guess asked a ton. What's my gear? What camera do I use? What lens do I use? What tripod do I use? And I'll always answer that question. And then I always add, but it's not about the gear. It's not about the camera. It's not about the lens. It's not about the tripod. You can do the kinds of photographs I do in the field with tons of different kinds of cameras and lenses. Mm -hmm. That being said, the tripod that I use, which happens to be a Manfrotto, but there are other tripods that do the same thing, it has a center post. Well, there are two ways to get around getting the camera low enough. One is if you can invert your center post and turn it upside down, and then you're hanging your camera from what used to be the top of the center post, but now is the bottom of the center post. So that's a way to get your camera very low. You're operating the camera upside down, so you have to get used to that. My tripod, the center post flips to go horizontal. It doesn't invert. It flips to go from vertical to horizontal. And between that and the ability to splay out the legs at any angle I want and any length that I want, that with the simple laws of geometry and physics allows me to get the camera pretty much anywhere I want it to be. So that's the key feature, I suppose, uh, to look for if you're going to be taking tripod photos low to the ground. You have to have some way to get it low. Either invert the center post or flip it. I prefer the way that to the flip it way because the camera is still right side up and I'm controlling the I'm not controlling my camera upside down. Makes sense. Now your home setup, this is going to be amazing. Tell me about how you how you do this all at home. So at home, the Sony that I used to have in the field is now the one I use at home. And at home basically two different lenses that I use. The first one is one, it's Laowa, it's a sort of a funny name, L-A-O-W-A, and they have a lens which goes from two and a half to five X, meaning two and a half to five times life size. And it's four or $500, and considering the price of that lens, it's incredibly good. I love that lens. I still use that lens, and it creates, in my opinion, beautiful pictures. It is a manual lens. It has no automatic focus. So that means either you have to have incredibly good finger control to move your camera a tiny bit at a time, or since I don't have that, I have something called an automated rail. So it's a piece of equipment that has an electronic controller and you set where the camera starts and it's a rail that moves it with a geared drive. It moves the camera along the rail with a distance that you specify in microns. That's thousands of a millimeter. Yeah, so a very precise instruments. So I used that. At, that's why I started at home. I still use that. And then I read about people who were using microscope objectives adapted to their cameras to photograph slime molds, which to photograph other things. At first, I read about other things. And then I thought, wow, I wonder if I could try that with a slime mold. So I bought a 10x microscope objective and learned how to adapt it to my camera. And I've been using that for about it right before the pandemic started, like the week before, which was great because I had a lot to keep me busy during the pandemic. So I use that for a lot of the stuff that I do these days. And I still want to get even closer. So I am toying with the idea of getting a 20x microscope objective, which will be a lot harder to use. Are there DIYs online for adapting a microscope objective for a camera? Yes. Yeah. It's actually quite simple. So. Yeah, there are DIYs. If you just Google how to adapt a microscope objective to your camera, you'll find lots of information. 
At, now, yes, three, four years ago, no, but now there's tons of information online. I'll give another plug to, uh, there's a guy named Alan Walls who has an excellent series of videos. He has, oh gosh, at least a couple hundred videos online all about macro photography and extreme macro photography. And if you want to learn how to do this, adapting a microscope objective to your camera, he has just a wealth of information. He's an excellent teacher and you will learn a lot by watching his videos. That sounds great. And it, I think you told me that you were just recently interviewed by him or had some other... Yeah, he asked me a long time ago and I just, I was shy and I didn't want to do it. And finally I said, yes. Yeah. So it was just about a week and a half ago that he interviewed me for a couple of hours along with Rick Littlefield, who is the, the brain and the developer of Zerine Stacker, which is, in my opinion, the best focus stacking software. So that's now online and we can put a link to that in the show notes as well. And in that video, I show all of my gear and explain how I do things. Perfect. I'll point to that for sure. I've been an amateur photographer. I've sold a few images over the years. So these things you talk about, I've toyed with at times, but I have never perfected. So I'm looking forward to seeing more about how you do it. It's a lot of fun. It takes a lot of patience yes. and a lot of time, but it is a lot of fun. I'm just always blown away by what I can reveal. And then when you see that image after spending all the time and you actually see it on the screen and it just, it takes your breath away sometimes when it works out. It's, oh my gosh, <laughs> this is what it looks like. Yeah, but actually I haven't mentioned this yet, but I always know what it's going to look like beforehand because I have a microscope. So I had an experience all too many times of going through the hours long process of taking hundreds of photos with the microscope objective, stacking them only to find that there was a big piece of dirt on one of the fruiting bodies that to me destroyed the image. So I decided to get a dissecting microscope so that I could look at the slime molds first, figure out which are the prettiest ones, what's the best angle. And that was really a great investment. They're not that expensive. And then you get to also get to see all kinds of really cool things in the microscope, like springtails, for example. So I bought a microscope so that I could see them first. And so I have a very good idea of what I want the image to look like. So when it comes out of focus stacking, it's not actually the first time I'm seeing it. You've graduated to a better system. That's a brilliant idea to do that. So it's, it seems so simple in retrospect, but one of the things I would have never really thought to do. Well, it was so frustrating. I, I don't know, easily a handful of times where I was just unhappy with the way the picture came out. I said, oh, if I only I'd known what it looked like beforehand, duh, there's a way to do that. I also, by the way, just bought a compound microscope, which is much higher magnification because that's what, if you want to be able to ID the slime molds to species, the vast majority of the time, you need to look at the insides of the slime mold and the spores under a compound microscope. Yet further down the rabbit hole, more of a time sink, but I'm really curious to do that. Is an electron microscope up next for you then? It seems like that's the path <laughs> you're going down. That's the, one, the joke that my husband is constantly saying to me. You're going to get an electron microscope? I don't think so. I have played with one once. I actually did a series of macro photography of seeds, native California plant seeds. And I was able to connect with somebody at the Academy of Sciences who very kindly let me work with her on a scanning electron microscope to look at these seeds. So that was really cool. But How cool. No, I don't think I'm going to. I don't think I'm going to get one. So you talked a little bit about identification and how it can be very difficult to identify. And sometimes you actually have to dissect these slime molds. What resources do you have though, for people who want to learn more either about ID or slime molds themselves that they might be able to find books or videos or webinars or whatever may come to mind for you? 
Sure. Let me answer a slightly different question first. I would say maybe, I'm just a guess, maybe 10% or so of the documented slime molds can be ID'd by a good photo alone. You don't need to see the insides. But the vast majority of them you do. So you need to look at what are called the, inside that sphere that holds this sphere-like thing that holds the spores are these threads called capillidial threads. And so you have to look at the structure and the shape and the characteristics of these capillidial threads, as well as the size of the spores and what's called the ornamentation on the spores. And that, of course, has to be done with a compound microscope at 1000x. Are there keys to help with identification under a microscope or even without a microscope? There are some keys for sure. There are a number of books that, that have keys in them. There are a few keys online. I would say for me, what I've seen, the best key is in a two-volume set of books. It's in French called Les Mixomisettes, but it's the keys are in English. The photographs, stunning photographs in one volume, and then the keys in French and English in the other volume. Unfortunately, that book has gone out of print, which is a real bummer because it's a fantastic resource. There are other older keys out there, some of which can be reproduced online. I can give you something to put in the show notes if you'd like about available keys online. I, but I think that the actual best resource, if you want to learn about slime molds and it's free and you you have microscopic images as well as macro images, is to post them to the Facebook slime molds group. If you post those images Almost surely, one of the experts in that group will help you identify the species. Very cool. It is very cool. I've learned so much from just reading what the experts say about why something is one species and not another species. It's just terrific. They're so generous with their time there. So your home setup, you've refined your process so well that, as I understand it, you entered the Nikon Small World Competition and did quite well. So tell me about that experience. Yeah, that's a competition put on by Nikon for the last almost 50 years, photography through the microscope, which includes literally photography through a microscope or a homemade microscope. And my setup is considered a homemade microscope. And I'd heard about it from a friend. And when I first looked at it, this is several years ago, I thought the photos on there were just amazing. And he suggested entering and I just said, no way. And the year after I did, you're allowed to enter three photographs in a year. So I entered three photographs and I was completely astonished when one of them was selected for the top 20. Uh, I was really excited about that. And then this year I entered three photos again. And this time one of my photos placed fifth place, which really blew me away. I was just jumping up and down when I found out. And I had a second of my photos selected for a category they call honorable mentions. So it was really Very exciting the week that all came out. And is there a link I can point people to to see your photo and the other photos? If you just Google Nikon Small World, you'll find it. I'll link to those results in the show notes so that people can find your photo and see the other photos that were in the contest. All right, so we are rapidly approaching the end of our time. So I want to make sure that we hit a couple of other fun wrap-up topics. Thinking back, is there a top-of-head event or an encounter that really stands out as escalating your interest or care for the natural world? Sure. I would say, actually, can I give two answers? I'm trained as a mathematician, but my career was environmental science and specifically air pollution. And one time when I was pretty early into my career, I was hiking with my partner in uh, Sequoia National Park. And I was we hiked up to the top of a mountain and we were looking west towards LA and there was this vast cloud of ozone over LA. And it was just 
shocking to me to see that. And I just, I can still see it so clearly. I just remember thinking, I'm really glad I'm doing my bit to help the environment. So that was one. And the other one was the first time I went to Oregon was on a consulting job and somebody was driving me somewhere to go look at something and we passed what was a clear cut area. And I'd never even seen, I'd heard the term clear cut, but I'd never seen pictures of it and certainly never seen one. And I, we turned a corner and there was this clear cut forest and I, I just burst into tears. It was just horrible to me to see, to take down stands of what in some cases were old growth trees and was really sad. That was something I definitely remember. And we've only really recently, I say we as in like society have only recently learned about the dramatic impact beyond the trees that has. There's irreparable harm that's done to the soils and to the broader ecosystems when that happens. Yeah, definitely moving to see that. So maybe on a related note, then if you could magically impart one ecological concept to help people see the world like you see it, what would that be? I would encourage people to do as much as they can to preserve the remaining forests that we have left. It's not just the, the redwood forests that, that are almost completely decimated in the in California and the Pacific Northwest, but it's destruction in the Amazon and destruction all over Asia for growing palm oil. So whatever people can do to preserve the remaining forests that we have, you chop down the forest and you're not only doing a horrible damage in terms of climate change, but you're also really destroying species. We need to preserve the forests. Do you have any recommendations as to how people can help in that regard? Do you have preferred methods, charities, nonprofits, whatever? My approach is to contribute to various charities. A Sierra Club is certainly one here, but there are lots of charities that you can contribute to. Just do what you can or get out there and do work or read what you can, try to educate people. If you don't know enough about the forest and you just go walk in a forest after a rain. A forest after a rain is just a beautiful place. I like to say that my happy place is a wet forest. I need to get a t-shirt with that. But yeah, it's just beautiful. And I think the more that people get into the forest and realize how gorgeous it is, the more that they'll want to save. Absolutely. Taking a hard right turn, I guess. Do you have any upcoming projects or anything else that you'd like to highlight? I do have... One upcoming project, which is exciting for me, Alan Rockefeller, who's a very well-known mycologist, and I will be teaching a class called The Art of Mushroom Photography. And that's a five-day class to be held in a really beautiful location on an island just off the coast of Wisconsin, Madeline Island. It's a place called Madeline Island School of the Arts. So that's going to be next September. I hear the place is beautiful, the facilities are beautiful, and I'm really looking forward to teaching that class. And I'm going to be giving some talks coming up. I didn't want to give talks during the pandemic because I don't really like doing Zoom talks that much. So things are opening up now. So I've already signed up to give a few talks this season. So I'm excited about that. Anything I can do to show people the beauty of slime molds and tiny fungi and how to photograph them, I'm happy to do. Is there somewhere you can point people towards? Do you promote these events on your Instagram or any other on your website or anything like that? I wish I could say, yes, look at my website. And I'm a, a little embarrassed to say I don't yet have a website. I just haven't taken the time to do it. I'd just rather be doing the photography. But I, I have an Instagram and a Facebook account, which will be in the in your show notes. And I just finally set up a link tree for each of those. So in that link tree, there's a listing of the, the Madeline Island classes listed in there. The video I referred to from Alan Walls, that's in there and a few other things. So I, I'll keep that updated. That's probably the best place to, to find additional information. And if people want to contact me, they can also contact me through the Facebook and Instagram accounts. 
All right, perfect. I'll make sure that yeah, all of those links will be in the show notes for sure. Like we were talking about before, sometimes when I post the podcast, there's actually a limited number of characters that go into the podcast feed directly. So I have full show notes on my website at podcast.naturesarchive.com. So if anything doesn't fit for some reason, make sure to check that out and you'll be able to find all these great links that Allison mentioned. I can actually put a couple of uh, books in there as oh, well okay. that people can get for introduction to slime molds. That would be great. All right. So Allison, this has really been an enlightening discussion for me and I'm super motivated. The timing couldn't have been better for our weather here. So I'm really motivated to get out and see what I can find. And, and I'll make sure to share anything I do find on my own Instagram too. But is there anything else that you want to say before we call it a day? Nope. I think, I think we're good. It's been I've been looking forward to doing this. I'm having fun. And I encourage people, wherever you are, go out into a wet forest and take your magnifying glass and look for the beauty of tiny organisms. All right. Thank you so much. I appreciate you and you taking the time today to do this. It, As I said, it's been a great joy. Thank you. Thanks for sticking through the entire episode. If you made it this far, I hope that it means that you enjoyed it. If so, please spread the word and share this episode with three friends or groups that you think would enjoy it too. As for today's episode, let me know. Did I miss anything? Was there a topic I should have covered? Let me know at podcast at jumpstartnature.com or DM me on any of my social accounts. I'll do my best to answer your questions. You can find me at Nature's Archive, one word, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. I also share photography, nature stories, and much more on those accounts, so you can follow just to stay in touch, too. And despite being called crazy by numerous friends and colleagues, last year I left my tech career behind to start Jumpstart Nature, which Nature's Archive is now part of. For the sake of myself, my family, and the planet, I need to make this work. So please also consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash jumpstartnature. I offer some exclusive content and perks, and you can start donations as low as $4 a month. Lastly, please also check out our latest creation. It's the Jumpstart Nature podcast. We just completed our pilot season, where each episode reveals an unseen, surprising, or misunderstood nature topic with the help of experts and our host, Griff Griffith. It's entertaining and inspiring, and even reached number three on the Apple Nature podcast charts. There's much more on our roadmap, but we need your support, so check out jumpstartnature.com for more details. Thank you.